You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And we turn now to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. And let's pray together before we begin. Father, it is our desire that we would hear from you in your word. We thank you for your word, the truth, that it is in our language, and that we can have it and understand it. And thank you for opening our eyes and our hearts to respond to it inappropriately with repentance and with faith. We pray now that you would open our hearts again, that we may understand your word and and see our duty in light of what you have revealed. And may we glorify you in our obedience to this word as we trust you and, and wait upon you as the great God of heaven who has given us all things to enjoy. May you be honored through the meditations of your people and our understanding of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to read together the first 15 verses. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. I'm certainly not the only one here who, when we read verses 1 to 8, had a certain song get stuck in your head, right? I gather from your chuckle that you know what I'm talking about. What song is that? I'll give you a hint. It's the same song that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of today, because it's been in my head this entire last week as I've studied this passage. It's the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Yeah, of course, now we get it. Now, now, Dave made me promise, better said, he he threatened me that if I tried to sing this like I did John Lennon's Imagine, that he would get upset with me. So I'm not going to sing any notes of that song, but it is the song written by a man named Pete Seeger in the 1950s. Turn, Turn, Turn. It was made famous by the Birds in 1965. And other than the final phrase of that song, which is, uh, I swear it's not too late, six words, all but six words of that song were taken directly from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And of course the refrain, turn, 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 doesn't come from this, uh, from this passage, but all the rest of the lyrics do. Now Pete Seeger was a communist, uh, communist sympathizer. And he wrote that song as an, as an ode to world peace, to try and the idea was to give peace a try. And the final phrase of the song is, the time for peace, I swear it's not too late. And the birds and Pete Seeger intended that song as a, as a, a desire, an expression of a desire for, for world peace. And they took it right from this passage. 
Um, Pete Seeger, because he admitted that he took the lyrics from that song, from this passage, in order to do something for the Jews, because uh, he had taken their scriptures and turned it into a pop song, Pete Seeger devoted, uh, set it up so that 45% of all the royalties of this song would go to a foundation in the land of Israel. Now, wasn't that nice? You're kind of wondering, why would a communist sympathizer do that, right? Well, let me help explain that for you. The foundation that he do- donates 45% of the royalties of this song to is a foundation that is devoted to opposing Israeli settlements on what they call occupied territory or Palestinian land and replacing them with Palestinians in those occupied territories. Now, why would he do this? Because obviously nothing, and I do mean nothing, says peace, like driving Jews out of their homeland and replacing them with Palestinians who are committed to the annihilation of the Jewish state. That has shalom written all over it, doesn't it? It gives us the warm fuzzies just to think of this. And we all feel that even in hearing that, that we are on the cusp of world peace, just that activity itself. In fact, we all probably want to sit around and link arms and sing Kumbaya and pass the peace pipe and uh, talk about the brotherhood of man while we gaze at our navels. Doesn't that make you want to do that? Just feel so much better about yourself? Well, that was Pete Seeger's intention was to uh, to give this money to the Jews for that ver- to the Jews, ironically, actually to the Palestinians for that very purpose. Now, though he meant this song to be an ode or a, an expression of his commitment to world peace, this poem in Ecclesiastes chapter three is not about peace at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. In fact, that song which made that this poem very famous to an entire generation of people, and obviously multiple generations, because many of you here know what song I'm talking about, was a complete perversion of the source material. This poem is not about peace. It's not about world peace. It's about the complete opposite. But of course, if you were expecting a communist sympathizer to accurately read and interpret Scripture, (laughs) you're setting yourself up for just a wee bit of disappointment, I think, in just even expecting that. So we're going to find out today what this poem is about. In fact, we're going to look at all 15 verses that I read to you, all 15 verses. Not that we're going to take our time to march slowly through um, the back and forth of the poem itself, because uh, as you're going to see that the intention or the meaning of the poem is not to be gained by any one of the elements in the poem itself, but as the poem itself, uh, any one of the elements individually, but as the poem as a whole communicates something that we're going to see what it is that that communicates. So in verses 1 through 9, we have there the poem and a question that is raised as a result of the poem. The question in verse 9, what profit is there to the worker in that which he toils? And then in verses 10 through 15, Solomon explains to us the significance of the poem and what it is that he is trying to communicate from it. So that's why we're going to take all of this together. Verses 1 to 9 is the poem about man's experiences under the sun in this life. And then verses 10 to 15, Solomon's explanation and application of what the poem was intended to to teach us. So we'll look first of all at the poem. And before we do it, I'm going to give you sort of four generalizations or four general statements about, about the poem itself. And this is significant because, as I said, the meaning of the poem is not in the word peace or the word love or the word hate or the word kill or birth or dying or any of the other sowing and reaping or any of the other things that are mentioned here. The significance of the poem does not rest in any one or even a couple of these, of, of these items. The significance of the poem is what it is that Solomon is trying to communicate by the, the entire poem itself. So we're going to work through the details, but let me give you a few general observations about verses 1 to 9. First, this poem, uh, first of all, this and this is going to be so obvious to you, it is a poem and it is a unique one. It's a unique poem. In fact, if you're familiar with Hebrew poetry, you know that there's parallelism in Hebrew poetry. But this parallelism is unlike anything you read in the Psalms. We read at the beginning of our service Psalm 115. 
you saw that the structure of Psalm 115 and the way it develops an argument is entirely different than what you see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is parallelism here in Ecclesiastes 3, but it is different than parallelism elsewhere in Hebrew Scripture. In fact, this type of parallelism in this structure is entirely unique. There is nothing else in, the, in any of Scripture that is like it. So when we read, for instance, in Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Those are parallel thoughts because Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme words, it rhymes ideas. And there are different ways that these ideas are rhymed or connected to one another. So sometimes they're contrasted, sometimes they're similes, sometimes they're different parts of a metaphor, sometimes one is an explanation of the other. But the, there's a parallelism in Hebrew in Hebrew poetry. There's parallelism here, but it is different than the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a different kind of parallelism. So this is a unique uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, because it is a poem and it is a unique one. Second, the poem features a series of contrasts. And you notice that looking even at verse 2, the beginning of it, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. And so it goes all the way through the passage. There are these things that are set in contrast to one another. They are even, they are even opposite to one another. There's birth and there's death. There's planting and there's harvesting. And all the way through, these are, there's gathering stones and casting away stones. These things are set in opposition so that one is positive typically and the other is negative. And so you have pluses and you have minuses and that's how it goes. And these things are, are contrasted against one another. So there is a rhythm and a cadence to this poem that is intended. It is, I think it's intentional. It is as Solomon is swinging back and forth between two extremes. You go to this and you go to that. And you go back to this and you go back to that. Now remember in chapter one, the cycles, the monotonous cycles of nature and the wind and the rain and all of that that we looked at that was so vexing and frustrating to Solomon. Remember we went through the monotonous cycles. This is another set of monotonous cycles, but this has to do with the things that we experience in life. And so there is this cadence. There is this back and forth of one swinging from one end of the pendulum to another as these things in polar opposites are set in contrast to one another. And they are intended, I think, to give us this sense that we are adding something and we are subtracting from something. You go to this, a positive, and then you have a negative, and then you have a positive, and then you have a negative. And and the whole idea behind doing that is this. Um, what do you get when you add one and then you subtract one? And then you add one and then you subtract one. And you do this 14 times as Solomon does in these seven verses. What do you come up with? I know it's difficult. I went to public school too, but this last week I took a, a calculator and I worked it out. I worked it out twice to double check myself to make sure that I got it. It's zero. You add one, you subtract one, you add one, you subtract one. I know you graduate from high school and you think, when am I ever going to use these skills again in my entire life? And then you show up at church and the preacher's asking you to do complex math from the pulpit. And that's when you need to use the complex math skills that you learn. You add one, you subtract one, and at the end of it all, you get to what? Zero. See, now you're catching on. See, that wasn't so hard. You did that with a calculator. helped us out. Thus, the question in verse 9, what is the profit? What is the advantage? You go to war and you have peace. Every wartime is interrupted by peace. Every peacetime is interrupted by war, which is interrupted by peace, which is interrupted by war. I gather stones, I throw stones. I gather stones, I throw stones. I sew it together, I tear it apart. I build it up, I tear it down. I weep, I laugh. All of my joy is interrupted by sorrow. All of my sorrow is interrupted by joy. And we go back from one extreme to the other. And when it is all said and done, all of it has been for what? That's the question in verse 9. It's been for nothing. You add one and you take it away. You add one and you take it away. Such is the cycles of life. Such they are. That they come and that they go. And at the end, we have nothing to show for it. Remember, that has been Solomon's frustration all along. Now, there's a... A figure of speech or a, a, a language device here called a merism. A merism. And if you're, I, I didn't know what this was until a couple of weeks ago. So again, I went to public school. So uh, 
Those of you who didn't, maybe you know what this is. A merism is when you describe uh, something as a whole by referring to two of its parts which stand in opposition to one another. So we do this all the time in the English language. Like if you lost your keys and you can't find your keys, you might say, I searched high and low for my keys. What do you mean by that? Do you mean that you only searched underneath the couch and on top of the cabinets, but you missed everything in between? No, when you refer to that, you say, I searched high and low for it. You're saying, I searched high, I searched low, and I searched everything in between. You are referring to the whole of something by referring to only two of its opposing and opposite parts on either end of the spectrum. And so it is all the way through this passage. There is a time to be born and a time to die. These two things are the what? The bookends of our existence. And Solomon is not just describing the moment of your birth and the moment of your death. He is describing using those two things to refer to all that encompasses life from the time that you are born until the time that you die. And so it is with the planting and the harvesting. It is intended to incorporate all that goes in between that. The weeping and the laughing is not just two emotions that Solomon is describing. He is describing there the entire gamut of human emotion and experience. So this this poem is intended to capture all of life's all of life's uh, experiences, all of the things that happen to us, all of the things that we that, that come into our lives, the cycles of life, everything from birth all the way to death. It is all of those things. So that is what a merism is, and that's what Solomon is doing here. These are the experiences that happen to us in life. Now, third, the poem describes an exhausting list of activity. Did you notice that? An exhausting list of activity. Sowing and reaping and gathering and collecting and searching and losing and living and dying. and You just get exhausted just reading through it, right? And keep in mind that these are the activities, or this, this describes life under the sun. And listen, it describes life under the sun in a fallen world. That's why we have hatred and death and war and losing and mourning and weeping and all of the negative things that happen here. These are the things that characterize life under the sun. And it's a lot of activity. And then fourth, the poem ends with the word peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which doesn't just mean a cessation of activities. The word peace, uh, shalom there, is actually a word that describes more than just being at peace between nations. It actually describes a state of contentment or satisfaction, of wholeness, of completeness, of, of, of complete uh, harmony. It was, it's a very full word in the Jewish sense. But here's the irony of it. Even though the poem ends with the word peace, the poem is not a poem about peace. Everything in here describes the things that rob us of our peace, like war and hatred and mourning and weeping and losing and casting off and all of those negative things. So though the poem ends with peace, there's nothing peaceful about the poem itself. And that is intentional. There's a sense of irony there that these things are appointed to us, and yet we don't have this peace that the poem ends with. So now, having looked at those four things, let us kind of go through the passage itself. And we're not going to take, I'm not going to take too much time to to walk through all the details of it, because like I said, the meaning is not to be gleaned by the, the individual parts of the, of the whole. Verse 1, there is therefore an appointed, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Now that's sort of the opening statement, the opening thing that introduces what the poem is intended to communicate. That there are these appointed times, and God is the one who in his sovereignty has appointed these times for us. And then Solomon's going to go on to describe all of these times, 28 of them. In fact, there are 28 times where the word time occurs in this passage. Twice in verse 1. That's 30 times the time occurs in the passage. Now, what do you think is the significance or meaning of the poem? Is this a poem about peace? As much as we might want to turn, turn, turn it into one? Is it a, is it a poem about peace? It's not, is it? What is it a poem about? Time. That's right. 
These are the seasons, these are the times, these are the events that come into the affairs of men, that afflict or come into each one of our lives. These are the things that God has appointed. And then Solomon lists them here. There is a time, verse 2, to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Now, both both of those parallelisms there are intended to communicate the idea of something at the beginning and something at the end and, of course, everything in between. What is interesting to note is that both with people and with plants, people nor plants have anything to do with the time in which they are planted or come into the world, do you? I had nothing to do with the timing of my birth. Nothing at all. If I did, I would have had it on like July 4th so that everybody would be celebrating on my birthday. But I had nothing to do with the, with the timing of my birth. And I will have nothing to do with the timing of my death. These things are entirely outside of my control. They are appointed to me and to you by a sovereign God who is good and gracious and wise and loving and kind. These things were appointed for us. These are the times that are appointed. A time to be born and a time to die. And likewise with the plant. The plants in my garden had nothing to do whatsoever with the time that they were sowed or with the time that I pulled them up and harvested the fruit. They had nothing to do with that. These things were determined for them by them for by another. And that's one of the points of this poem, that these things are appointed to us. Look at verse 1. There is a season, an appointed time for everything and a time for every event under heaven. And we must receive these things as given to us by the hand of God. So verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. At this point, I should mention that this, the, the details of this poem are intended to be descriptive and not prescriptive. Descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, they are describing what we experience in life, not prescribing something for us to do. And you have to point that out so when you get to verse 3 and you say a time to kill, you don't say to yourself, well, the Bible says there's a time to kill, and that's good news because i got a list of people that need killing. And I'm going to get on that as soon as the service is over. No, these all of these elements describe for us the things that come into to life. And by the way, there are, ty- there are types of killing that are not immoral or wrong. There are just, war- just wars in which killing is justified. There are acts of self-defense that are not immorally wrong if you end up taking a life defending yourself or somebody that you love. Capital punishment is not morally wrong. God commanded those things, and God would not have commanded them if they were in themselves morally wrong. It's not morally wrong to kill an animal, for instance. So not all killing is immoral. Not all killing is murder. There are forms of killing which take human life, but not all killing is an unjustified taking of an innocent human life, which would be murder. So there are acts of killing that are not uh, morally wrong or morally reprehensible. For instance, if you have a, if you have a puppy and that puppy breaks its leg, it's probably a time to heal. You set the leg, it's worth spending a couple hundred bucks knowing you're going to get some years out of this puppy. It's going to be a source of joy, so you take it to the vet, spend a couple hundred bucks, the leg heals. But if you've got a 15-year-old, deaf, blind, arthritic, cancer-ridden, diabetic dog that breaks its leg, what is it time to do? It's time to do some killing, as unfortunate as that might be, and it's not morally unjustified or wrong for you to kill that animal as painful or as harmful, as, uh, as painful or hurtful as that might be to your family. Okay, so not all killing is unjustified, not all killing is murder. Verse four, a time to, uh, verse three, a time to tear down and a time to build up. We all know what it means to tear down houses and build up houses. Sometimes things uh, live their usefulness. These are just the cycles of life. Again, verse four, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Those describe the emotions that hit us and all the spectrum in between those parallels. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. That probably referred to the act of, uh, and you see it in the Old Testament when sometimes nations would conquer another nation, they would gather up stones and throw them out into the field, which made cultivation and use of those fields uh, 
very difficult. And those people then would have to gather up those stones and remove them off of the field. It was one way of sort of punishing your enemies by making sure that they couldn't uh, pr- provide for themselves by cultivating the land. So that's probably what that refers to, a time to throw stones and to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost. There are times when you look for something and there eventually comes a point where you just say, you know what, it's lost and I'm going to lose that forever. I'm never going to see it again. A time to keep and a time to throw away. That's a lesson some of us need to learn. It's okay to throw things away. There's a time for that. It's biblical. Do it. Verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And notice that all the way through that, the Solomon is not giving us any commentary as to when these times are. You notice that? He doesn't say, now this is the time for speaking and this is the time for, for remaining silent. We all know that there's a time to keep your mouth shut and a time to say something. We always recognize that it was time to keep our mouth shut right after we did what? Said something, right? And it's always too late. And it would be nice if Solomon were to give us some advice, which he does actually in the book of Proverbs. So he's not talking about the morality. He's not commenting on the morality of any of these actions or whether they're ethical or not. He's not even talking about when, when these seasons happen or in what order or anything like that. He's just observing these pendulum swings of life that they come and they go. But the important point is verse 1. They are appointed for you. They say that there are negative things in this passage, aren't there? Killing and war and mourning and weeping and losing and tearing down and tearing apart. There are negative and painful things mentioned in this passage. And that's true, there are. But listen, the secret to handling the negative things in this passage is to recognize that these things are appointed to us by the hand of a loving and sovereign God. If you cannot receive from His hand what you deem to be in the moment ill or a bad turn of events, if you cannot receive that from the hand of a loving and sovereign God as His gift to you, you will never be able to handle it appropriately. You never will be able to handle it appropriately. We must live under the sovereignty of God, verse 1, understanding that these things are appointed for us in their time. And then we have to be able to say in the words of verse uh, of verse 10, that these things are beautiful and he makes these things beautiful in their time. Okay, so that is the poem and it brings us to verse 9. What then is the prophet for the worker in which he toils? And that's the question. Now, from the vantage point of Solomon, after going through all of these, all of these uh, swings of life, the pendulum swings of life, the question that he asks here only has a negative answer. There's no prophet. Right? Because that's the point. We gain, we lose, we gain, we lose, we gain, we lose. And at the end of gaining and losing, what do we have? We have nothing. So from the vantage point of under the sun, with God out of the picture, and notice that God is nowhere mentioned in the first nine verses. Nowhere. That's not on Solomon's mind. He's just describing the events that that come upon all of us, that hit all of us one after another. Bad, the good, the bad, the good, the back and forth. And if you get to the end of it, and what has it all been for? The only answer we can issue to that, give to that, is it has been for nothing. It has all been for naught. Except, now Solomon is going to turn the corner on us and show us that though these events happen by the providential and sovereign appointment of God in the lives of all of us. At the same time, God Himself is working in history, verses 10 through 15, and here are the ways that God works in history, here is how God works in history, and here is how we should respond. So now we turn come to verse 10. So we've gone through the poem, we've looked at Solomon's question. Verses 10 through 15 is Solomon's explanation of the poem and his description of how God works in time. We experience these things. And all we see is the pendulum of life slapping us across the face on one side, slapping us across the face on its way back across to the other extreme on the other hand. And that's all we get from life. 
Now Solomon is going to say, though that's what we experience, we have to understand that there is a God who holds that pendulum in his hand. And now we see the hand of God in time, and how is it that we should respond? And there are three ways. We are to respond with faith, verses 10 and 11. We are to respond with joy, verses 12 and 13. And we are to respond with fear, verses 14 and 15. Faith, joy, and fear. I could have used the word felicity because it starts with F and it would have been kind of neat to have all of them start with the letter F. But if you went to public school with me, you might have said, who's felicity and what does she have to do with this message? (laughs) So I use the word joy instead, and so that's what we'll go with. Faith, joy, and fear. All right, verse 11. Uh, Verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Now, what task is Solomon talking about? And by the way, this was the, the first one. God works in time so that we might respond with faith. What task is it that Solomon is talking about in verse 10? It is all of the things, verse 1, that he has appointed to the sons of men. God is giving these things to us. Us. Now, you might view them as tasks. You might view them as onerous. There are negative things in this in this back and forth of events that we experience. That is true. But we see them as God appointing them for us and giving them to us. These are the things that occupy us in this life. The sowing, the tearing down, the building up, the, the reaping, etc. These are the things that occupy us. These are the tasks that God has given to us. And they come from his hand. Verse 11 is the statement of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 11 is the statement of faith. He has made everything appropriate in its time. And that word appropriate is sometimes translated beautiful. And in fact, you may have the word beautiful in your translation. And, and this is probably the most familiar or well-known verse in all of Ecclesiastes. He makes all things beautiful in their time. We have heard that. You've seen it on greeting cards. Uh, you've seen it on congratulations or graduation cards or whatever. It is something that we find on calendars and, and mugs and all that, and it's cute and it's appropriate. The word appropriate or the word translated beautiful simply means something that is fitting or something that is in its right place. And so when something is fitting and appropriate and it's in its right place and it's where it ought to be and we would want it nowhere, nowhere else, we say that it is beautiful. It's beautiful. God has a way of making all of these things appropriate and beautiful in the times that he has appointed for us by his sovereign hand. Now, when something is not appropriate and in its place at the right time in the right place where it should be, it's not beautiful. For instance, if I if I spread a load of manure out all over my garden, I see it and I think to myself, that is a beautiful thing. It is where it needs to be. That same load of manure in the middle of my front room is not a beautiful thing at all. It's not where it should be. It's not where it needs to be. It's not appropriate in that place. And therefore, it is not beautiful. On my garden, it is beautiful. In my my living room, it is not. All of these things, however negative or discouraging or depressing or bad they may be in how we perceive them, they're appropriate when God appoints them for certain seasons. We might view them as negative, but our God has a way of taking all of the things that we think are for our ill and turning them for our good. He causes all things to work together. This is the New Testament version of that. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And what is that good that is spoken of in Romans 8? That we are being conformed to the image of Christ so that Paul in that same in that same chapter can speak of his momentary and light afflictions that are working for him a glory that is incomparable uh, to the sufferings that he is experiencing here. And that being conformed to the image of Christ is the good thing. So though these things are negative to us, or though these things we may not want them to happen in our lives, or in our hearts, or to those that we love, or to us, we have to, as a statement of faith, say, God makes this beautiful, because He has appointed it for me, and He has given it to me, and if He has given me good, how can I not receive what is bad from His hand at all? Shall I only praise God when He does good things for me? 
Shall I only give Him thanks when He when He blesses me and lavishes me with good things and not take from His hands the things that are difficult, knowing that He has done this because it is appropriate and because it is right and because it is good? And so the statement of faith is in verse 11. We know that all things are beautiful in their time. The end of verse 11 is not so easy to understand. In fact, it's been called one of the most difficult verses in all of Ecclesiastes, not only to translate, but to under, but to, to get the sense of what he is saying. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done <clears throat> from the beginning even to the end. What does it mean that God has set eternity in our hearts? It simply means that you and I are created in such a way that we understand and know that there is something beyond this life. There is something in all of humanity that yearns for something beyond our 60, 80, or 100 years here. There's something in all of us that knows that this world is not all that there is. We are moral creatures. We are made for something greater. We are made for something better. And so there is in us this longing to understand the, 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 the details of what God is working out and why He apportions these things for us. We want to know the scheme. We want to get behind the, the, the curtains, as it were, and see what God is working out. We long to know something greater than us and something that is eternal. That, that yearning for something more. None of us wants to die. That is the, and none of all of us want to live forever, and we don't want to lose any of the things that we have. That is an expression of that eternity that God has put in us, that we are different than the animals. And we know that we're different from the animals. We know humankind, mankind knows that there is a God, and our knowledge of God is part of our nature. That is eternity in our hearts. The knowledge of God is part of our nature. Our suppression of that knowledge is part of our sin. But all men know that they're different than the animals, that we are not mere animals. Your, your 15-year-old... Deaf, blind, cancer-ridden, diabetic, what else did I say? Arthritic, family pet who just broke his leg earlier in the sermon. He's now laying in the corner in his bed. Does, does your dog sit there and wonder to himself, what's going to become of all of my doggy kingdom? I have accumulated all of these toys and I have dug all of these holes and now I must turn it over to another dog who has not worked for these things or earned these things. And who knows whether that dog will be a wise dog or a fool. And yet he will have control over all that I have accumulated and all that I have acquired. Does your dog do that? Does your dog sit in the corner and wonder what's going to become of him in his final days as you're on the phone with the vet or loading shells into your rifle? Does he sit there and wonder what is going to become of it all and who's going to take over everything that he has? Your dog doesn't wonder that. Does he sit there and say, I wish I would have spent more time with the pups when they were young instead of being out in the field working? Does he sit there and, and cry as he thinks to himself the lyrics to that song, uh, when you're coming home, pup, I don't know when, but we'll have a good time then, dad. Yeah, we'll have a good time then. Does your dog sit there and cry over that? No, but you do. Why? Because eternity is in your heart. And you, unlike any of the animals, are able to sit there and evaluate the meaning of it all and wonder, is there something more? There has to be something more. We know this intuitively. We suppress it sinfully. That is the story of mankind. So he has set eternity in our hearts. And as much as we might long to know and desire to know and try to figure out the secret things that God is doing in his sovereign appointment of all of these different seasons in life, as much as we might want to look into that and understand it and get behind the curtains of that, God has done this so that we cannot find out the work which he has done from beginning even to the end. That's verse 11. He has kept these things a mystery from us. Why is it a time for war now and a time for peace later and then a time for war? Why has God appointed these things for human existence? We might long to know that. That is an expression of eternity in our hearts. But we are not going to be able to figure that out because He has kept it hidden from us. And so we must, we must respond with faith and say, it's beautiful in its time. And there we leave it. It's beautiful in its time. 
I may not understand all the intricacies of it, but I can know that what he has appointed, he has appointed to us by his grace, by his sovereignty, by his goodness, and it is appropriate in its time. The second thing, we should respond with joy. This is verses 12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. This is another one of what we call the pleasure passages. Not because the passage is commending pleasure as a pursuit in itself. We already saw in chapter 2 that Solomon says that is empty, it's vanity to pursue pleasure in all of its forms just for the sake of pursuing pleasure. That's not what the pleasure passage is described, but we're going to see this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as he returns to this theme again and again. This is something Solomon continues to do. In describing all the inequities of life and all the things that afflict us, he always comes back to this one thing. Eat and drink and enjoy the life that God has given to you with the wife of your youth. Eat and drink and enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. Eat and drink and enjoy these things because we can't understand all these mysteries and the frustrations and the things that vex us and plague us. We can't understand the intricacies of this. And so what do we do? Enjoy the gift that God has given to us. What does it involve? Rejoicing and doing good, being obedient to God doing good for others, for ourselves, for our family members, for our loved ones, for our fellow man, and eating and drinking and seeing good in all the labor that God has given to us. Because this is what? It is the gift of God. You may not understand everything that God does in appointing this season or that season for your life, but you can say it's beautiful. And you can say, I will eat and drink and enjoy the gift that God has given to me in that moment. Let me make this real personal. For us, on Tuesday, we're all going to go out. We're going to do our part to vote, or maybe some of you won't, um, whatever. In the midst of that, I have no idea, and you have no idea what awaits this nation, do you? Don't know whether it's going to be a time of building up or tearing down, a time of greatness or not greatness, a time for sowing or reaping, a time of war, a time for peace. These things are not in our hands at all. And as reprehensible as both of the choices are, to me personally, one of them is going to be in power, is going to be the president-elect on November 9th. I have no idea which one it's going to be. I have no idea what that means for us as a nation, for me as a person, for my family, or for us as a church. But I do know this, whatever it is that God has appointed for us, it will be beautiful in its time. That God has appointed something for us that is appropriate for what He wants to do in this nation, to this nation, and in His church. And we will get to the end of it and we will say, it is beautiful and I would not change a thing. And if we had God's perspective of His sovereignty and we loved as much as God loved and we were as wise as God is and we knew everything that God knows, we would get to the end and we would say, surprise, surprise, I would not change a thing. Because this is best. It is appropriate. Whatever it is that he has appointed is appropriate. It might be distasteful to us, but it will be appropriate for what God is intending to do. So what is our response? Listen, rejoice and do good and eat and drink and see good in all your labor. This is the gift of God. But what if as a nation it means that we are being torn down or destroyed? Eat and drink and rejoice and do good and see good in all your labor. This is the gift of God. Whatever the season is, good or bad, whatever may come into your life, you can't change it, you can't search it out, you can't know it. God has hidden His purposes. He has kept them from us. And so what is our response? We are to respond with joy. Rejoice and do good and eat and drink and know that our labor is good and see it as the hand of a gracious and loving God, whatever it is that He has appointed, that it is for our good. We are to respond with joy. Third, 
we are to respond with fear. Look at verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Everything God does will remain forever. This verse describes, verse 14, describes the permanence of God's work and the perfection of God's work. There's nothing to add to it or nothing to subtract to it. Now, oftentimes we, on this side of the veil, we look at what God is doing in our lives and the things that he has appointed to us, and you say, you know, if I were God, I would tweak this just slightly. I wouldn't put all that wealth in that guy's hands. I would put it in someone really close to me, like a mother, a father, a child, something like that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't work it out this way. I would do it this way instead. We would want to tweak that. But Solomon's point is that in all of these things that God has appointed, there is nothing to take from it. There is nothing that happens that we on the other side of eternity wish would not have happened. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing lacking. God has seen every contingency. He knows every free will act of men. He knows everything that is going to happen as a result of all the decisions that all men make. Every, every die that is cast, every election, every, every election that happens, every ballot that is cast, he sees and knows it all. And on the other side, we can say, as a statement of faith, there's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. Listen, it is a perfect plan. Perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And the heart of faith says it will be beautiful in its time. I can rejoice in this good gift that God has given to us and understand that it is a perfect plan and there is nothing to be added to it or taken from it because it is perfect and it is permanent. And God has done this so that men should fear Him. Fear is not a bad thing. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of God is part of our worship. It's part of our reverence. As those who have been redeemed by God, we're not... We don't cower in, in cavernly fear of him where we, we're terrified of him in the sense that we, that we tremble and want to run from him. We stand in awe of him and there is appropriate reverence and fear that is ours because we have been bought. We understand how God, how righteous God is, how holy he is. But as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who are his bride, we at the same time stand in reverent awe of him and we have been drawn very near to him. And so our fear is not a cowardly fear where we are terrified of him, but a reverential awe where we respect and love and adore him because of who he is. God is working in time so that we respond by faith, that we respond by joy, and that we would respond with appropriate fear. Verse 15, that which has been, sorry, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. First part of that verse might sound familiar to you because it is because Solomon said almost the exact same thing back in chapter 1. Turn, turn, turn back to chapter 1, verse 9, if you will. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. Notice the repetition. You can turn, turn, turn back to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is saying the same thing in chapter 3 that he said in chapter 1, but the perspective is different. In chapter 1, Solomon was observing, without any thought to God, all the monotonous cycles of life. Generation comes, generation goes, the rain falls, runs into the sea, back up and it falls again, the circles of the wind and all of that activity, and nothing is new, nothing has changed, and nothing is uh, remembered, all of that activity. And so with all of that activity that's going on, it's this monotonous, dry cycle of life that he cannot escape from, and he hates it. And why does he hate it? Why does he see it all as vanity in chapter 1? Because God is nowhere in the perspective. But in chapter 3, the perspective is different. And so he does see, again, these cycles of life. Living and dying and planting and harvesting and planting and harvesting and planting and harvesting. The same cycle. But here in chapter 3, he sees these things as appointed for us by the good hand of a sovereign and loving and wise God. And so his response is entirely different. In chapter 1, vanity, vanity, vanity. But in chapter 3, it's all beautiful in its time. We rejoice and we eat and drink and receive these things. 
from the gift as a gift from the loving hand of a loving God. And we respond with obedience and we respond with appropriate fear. We take these things from him because he is involved in the monotony. See, it's the same monotony that is being observed in both places. But in chapter one, it's vanity. In chapter three, it's appropriate and it's time. And what is the change? It all has to do with God's part in this. In chapter one, Solomon can't see any hand of God in it. In chapter three, Solomon sees nothing but the hand of God in it. It is appointed for us. And so it is good. The last half of chapter, of verse 15 is somewhat perplexing to us and we're not exactly sure what it means. I'll take a stab at it. Chapter 15, that which has been, uh, that which is has been already and that which will be has already been. The problem phrase is the last verse, last part of that phrase, where God seeks what has passed by. What is Solomon describing there? God seeks what has passed by. What is it that is passing by? Why is it passing by? Where is it going? Um, what is God seeking it for? What is God going to do with it? It's possible that this was something of a, of a colloquialism of Solomon's day, a figure of speech that we just simply don't understand what, ex- what exactly it meant in our context. <clears throat> I'll give you an illustration of that. Let's say 3,500 years from now, somebody dug up one of our writings that had been preserved, and they were reading something that I wrote to you in which I said, uh, a stitch in time saves nine. And they might recognize all of those words as being words, but not want, but wonder, you know, without our understanding of what that phrase means or what that colloquialism means in our context, they might say, I have no idea what a stitch in time saves nine means. It's just, it sounds like mumbo jumbo, like a bunch of words just strung together. 3,500 years from now in a different culture, in a different language, it, it might not make any sense to those who would hear that or say that or, or read it, I mean. But to us, we understand it. The same thing possibly here with this phrase, God seeks what has passed by. It may have been a colloquialism like that that had a certain meaning that we just aren't privy to. So, there have been a lot of suggestions as to what Solomon means by this. I'll give you what I think are the two best ones, the two most common ones. One of them, some uh, the first, some have suggested that what Solomon is describing here, <coughs> excuse me, still got that cough thing going, that what Solomon is describing here is that act of God judging those things that have gone by in the past. In other words, God will search the past. He knows the past. He knows what to us has gone by, all of the things that have happened, and they've gone into the past. God will pursue those things, and he will bring them to judgment. He he. he he goes after those things that to us pass by. It might seem to us as if the, the scales of justice have become unbalanced because of the things that have gone into the past unaccounted for and unreckoned. But God will deal with those things. He pursues those things and he will bring them up and judge them at the last day. That's the idea. Now, that would fit with the context of Ecclesiastes, particularly because throughout the book, Solomon reminds us that in all of our evaluating of life under the sun to remember that there is a judgment to come. And that's how the, that's how the book ends. And I know that God will bring every act of judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil, and so there men should fear him. That's in chapter 12. That's how Solomon ends the book. So it might be describing judgment. But the language of the entire passage, especially viewing all of these cycles of life from God's perspective, is so positive that other people suggest that uh, Solomon means something different. Not that God, not that Solomon is describing God's judgment of those things that have gone into the past and been forgotten by us, but listen, God's redemption of those things which have gone into the past and have been forgotten by us. In other words, that what God is after, he is looking into the past and he sees a paradise that has been lost. God will redeem that. He sees a innocence that has been lost. God will redeem that. He sees a world that has been racked by sin. We have lost perfection. We have lost our face-to-face fellowship with God. All of these things that have been in the past, God is seeking to redeem those things. Now, the context of our passage is how God works in time and what God is doing in time, right? So what is it that God is doing in time? What is the grand scope of time from beginning of creation, even before creation, all the way through to the final consummated and eternal state? What is God doing? He is redeeming a people for himself 
for His glory, for the good of those people. That is what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have determined to do. So this is all about redemption. All of, all of what God is doing in time is redemption. He is redeeming us. He is redeeming humanity. And eventually, He will redeem this fallen world. And so we wait for the adoption of sons. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait until this creation is delivered from its groaning. That is where it is all going. And so some have suggested what Solomon is describing here is God's ultimate redemption of the things that we think have been lost in these seasons of time that he has spoken of. So we have we have lost paradise. We have lost all of these things. We, we, we have, we've searched. We've given up as lost. Things have been torn down. Things have been broken. And then we look back at the timeline of life and say, are these things irretrievable? Are these things forever lost? Will we always, for all of eternity, have to deal with the loss of these things? And the answer that Solomon has given is no. God seeks or pursues. He is after and renewing those things which have passed by. What you think is lost forever because of these seasons of life, God will redeem them. That's the point. Now, is Solomon describing God's judgment of things gone by or God's redemption of the things gone by? Ultimately, these two things are connected, are they not? If God is to redeem a people, he must judge sin. And he will judge sin. So these two things are connected. Now, I, I think, I tend to think that Solomon is describing the ultimate redemption that God is after, since the concept here is, what is God doing in time? What is the purpose of all of the things that he has? He's laying out here a timeline. It's not just a back and forth, the pendulum, the swing, that is monotonous and never-ending. God has an aim in mind. What is it? He is pursuing those things which have been lost. He is pursuing and redeeming those things that has passed by. But in the act of doing that, God must and he will judge sin. He will. He will redeem those whom he has chosen, whom he has loved, whom he has set his affections upon, those who have repented of their sin and trusted Christ for salvation, and those who refuse the grace of God in redemption and what Christ has done will suffer the penalty for their sin everlastingly away from the gracious presence of God for all of eternity. They will suffer his wrath instead. That is what comes to them as a result of their rebellion and their disobedience. Now, we have before us this morning our communion. And we, we in observing the Lord's Supper, we recognize that there are two things going on. There is a redemption and there is a judgment. And these two things are inseparably linked. We are redeemed because Christ, God has judged our sin on the person of Jesus Christ so that he can declare us righteous who were not righteous and do not deserve that righteousness, we are given a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, the righteousness that belongs to Christ and Christ alone. It is not our righteousness that saves us. But that righteousness comes to us because God has judged sin in the person of His Son. All sin will be dealt with. The scales of justice in eternity will be leveled. And it must be so because God is a just God. So all of our sin will either be judged on Christ or it will be judged on the sinner who refuses to repent and believe upon the Savior whom God has sent. So we're going to observe communion this morning. Before we do that, we're going to examine our own hearts, confess our sin before the Lord. And I would warn you again before we partake of communion, if, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, let the elements pass from before you. This is not for you. This is for those who have trusted Christ for salvation and have the righteousness, been born again by faith, and have the righteousness that he has provided through his son. Let us bow our heads together. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.